I have a question though. How many of you uh, have siblings, brothers and sisters? How many have siblings? Okay. How many of you are the youngest? You guys, you. You know what I'm talking about. You do. There is nothing quite like the youngest child in a family, right? For some reason, they can be so small and yet wield so much power, or at least they think they do, right? I think about uh, my younger brother, Jonathan. Uh, he grew at a different rate than the rest of us. He, okay, he didn't grow, is what we'll say, for a long time. Uh, Jonathan didn't really grow until high school, but the rest of us all grew pretty early. And so uh, when we were little, my mom uh, would say that we could go out, we could play football, we could do different things. But if we were going to play rough, Jonathan wasn't allowed to play with us. And as older brothers, it was our job to tell him that he couldn't play with us uh, in those times because she didn't want him to get hurt. And so one time, my older brother and I, we said, hey, let's go out and let's play football, but let's play it rough. And we're thinking this is going to be a lot of fun. We get out there, we start, Jonathan comes out and he looks at me and says, well, I want to play. And I looked at him, being a big brother, I said, no, you can't play because we're playing rough and you're going to get hurt. Well, I'm thinking that's it. I've handled this problem. He'll, he'll be fine. Well, he runs inside and he gets his rollerblades on because he's going to skate out all his anger, right? That's what little kids do. Uh, but he comes outside, okay, and we're playing football, and he's going in circles on our little back patio there, and he's just skating. Now I'm thinking he's just having a good time over there, what he's doing. He's more like a shark circling, waiting for me to get close enough to the water's edge so he can take me out. That's what's happening. We finish playing football. My elder brother goes inside. I pick up the ball, and I walk over there uh, to head in the door, and Jonathan skates right up to me, and he kicks me right in the shin with his rollerblades. Okay. I drop to the ground in, in extreme pain. He slips the rollerblades off and he runs inside. I hear him start crying. I'm thinking maybe he's got some remorse. As I, I stumble into the house with a bloody stump of a leg, uh, I hear Jonathan crying to my mom, telling her the story of how I just kicked him. Okay. I was not okay with this. My mom's yelling my name at this point, and I'm like with all the evidence oozing from my shin at this moment trying to get up the stairs. But Jonathan always had these kind of things going on as the youngest child. We skip ahead a few years, and, and we, I'm in eighth grade at this point. Jonathan was in sixth grade. I stopped growing in seventh grade, so I was a bigger kid. Jonathan had a growth spurt from fourth grade to sixth grade that brought him to sixth grade at a whopping 63 pounds. Okay, so he was not very big, all right? And, uh, and so Jonathan was not a very big kid, and there were some kids in the classes around him that were a little rude to him about his size, and so he would fight back a little bit. And one day, my classmate and I were walking down the hallway, and Jonathan's up in front of us, and he sees one of those fifth graders that's a really big kid who's been picking on him a little bit, and he shoves that kid against a locker as he walks by. Now, as eighth graders, we're like the police of the school. We can't allow these things to go on, right? So we walked up behind him, we picked him up by his belt loops, and we hung him on the uh, coat backpack rack in the hallway and told him that he can't do that anymore. We're thinking we've served justice. This is handled. This is taken care of. Well, he carried that rage for a few weeks. And at one point, I went downstairs in our house, and I walked into his room because I had left something in there. And I go and I grab this thing off of the dresser and I turn around and there's all 63 pounds of rage standing at the door, okay? And I look at him, I said, oh, sorry, I was just grabbing this thing that I left him. Hold it in my hand, I'm showing him. Before I can even get the words out, he reaches up and punches me right in the face. Now, lucky for me and probably for him, he, he had to reach up high enough that he lost some leverage and it wasn't that bad, but he steps back and he's ready for a brawl to break out. Now, I am sitting there going, oh, it's on. 
But then I had another thought. I went, I'm literally over double his size, and if I hit him, he might die. So I picked him up, and I threw him over my shoulder. And I'm walking up the stairs, and he's pounding on me, going, what are you doing? Put me down. And I went over to my mom, and I dropped him on the ground at her feet, and I said, Mom, deal with your child. Don't ever say that to your mother, um, because that was not a good thing. But here's the thing. Both Jonathan and I, we wanted justice. We wanted the one who had wronged us to get what they deserved for their wrongdoing, right? We wanted to see our feelings vindicated, and it, it drove us to things that felt absolutely necessary in order to achieve our desired outcome. Justice. That's what we wanted. And we all have moments like this in our lives where, where sometimes we walk out this righteous path of justice that doesn't involve vengeance and we, we have seen it uh, come and we've celebrated the results of that. But then there's other times that we seek out justice by whatever means uh, come up, whatever we can think of. And, and the problem with that is we only tend to find that that justice is not as satisfactory. It doesn't seem to satisfy the hunger that we have for justice when we've had to compromise ourselves in order to achieve it. It's not like what the movies uh, show us where you see uh, like Liam Neeson in Taken or whatever it takes, he's going to bring justice for what has happened. And at the end, it seems like everything's satisfied. But the truth is, it just doesn't work that way. Now, justice is not a bad thing. In fact, we as Christians, we are called by God to seek justice and to act justly. Micah 6, 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God requires of you. That word require makes this a very important statement because this is not what God suggests to us or requests of us. This is requirement. When we look over God's law, you can see the theme of each of these stated requirements played out in every one of his laws. And then when we look at what Romans 7 says about the law and its purpose, it points out our sinfulness. If these requirements of God are woven through every bit of his law, then for us to not follow them is a sin. Do justice. That means injustice is a sin. That means to see opportunity to do justice, but to ignore it is a sin. We are called, commanded, required by God's law to do justice. So what exactly is justice? The first example that we need to look at to see true justice is God. We need to see this perfect picture. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this, The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. I love this and how it doesn't just say all the things he does are justice. It says all his ways are justice. He is the definition of it. He is the perfect example of justice. And when we as believers define justice, we need to keep this in mind and use his character as the mirror that we try to match every definition that comes up with it. And if it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Dr. Timothy Keller breaks biblical justice down into four facets that I want to share with you now uh, to help us understand this as we dive in. The first facet of, of biblical justice is generosity. Okay, we seem to understand generosity fairly well, but I want to give you some of the pictures of where our culture is at when it comes to our possessions, our wealth, those kind of things. Okay? So one view in our culture right now is this individualist view. Individualism is the idea that my possessions, my money, my wealth is mine and it is there to serve me. It's about my wants, my needs. 
Then you have uh, other views such as socialism, which is the idea that my money, my possessions should belong to the state to determine where they should go. Then you have uh, 1 Chronicles 29 and 1 Corinthians 4 that tell us something different. They point out that our money belongs to God. And we are simply stewards of it. He is to decide where it goes and what for. So when it comes to biblical, uh, the biblical justice view of generosity, we have to understand God's role in that and how we are stewards of what he has given us. He has entrusted to us what we have, and then we are to seek uh, and determine from his will what it is that we are to do with that. Okay? So the next one that we're going to talk about, we're going to get a little deeper into some of these things in a bit, but the next one, a uh, next facet of biblical justice is equality. All of us are made in the image of God and all are to be treated equal. Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. And then Deuteronomy 16.19, you must never twist justice or show partiality. Never accept a bribe, for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. We are called in how we handle matters of justice to be treating everyone as an image bearer of God equally. That is what we are called to in biblical justice. The next facet is advocacy. Proverbs 31.8-9, here's what it says. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. This is an interesting verse because some people use this to to say, well, see, it doesn't talk about that upper class wealthy person. This is not talking about them. But, But here's the truth. It's not actually excluding them. It's just that they in this specific category would tend to have a platform to to speak for themselves. But even if they fall into a situation where they cannot, we are called in biblical justice to advocate truthfully and clearly in this. It covers all fronts of that. The last of the four facets is responsibility. We, we take a basic definition of justice, which is giving people what they are due. And this means that the person who committed the crime or committed the sin deserves the punishment. But within the God's justice, there's a corporate side to this responsibility as well. Romans 12, 3 through 5 tells us this. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith that God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. We all belong to each other. That's an intense and interesting statement there. Because in this, as we belong to each other in Christ, we are called to keep each other accountable in sin and in righteousness. That means when I see my brother head towards or fall into sin, it is my responsibility to do all that I can to stop that. About seven years ago, I was sitting at Maranatha Bible Camp with a group of students from Colby, Kansas. And we had just finished a session, uh, and so we were kind of doing a small group breakdown afterwards, going through some questions. And we're right in the middle of some stuff, and someone bursts into the door of the classroom that we're in. It was Barry Holbrook. He was the youth pastor here for nine years. Many of you know him. But Barry comes bursting in loud and he grabs me and pulls me out of the room into the dark hallway, hands me to some of his students who drag me off into the darkness. I'm going, what kind of prank is this? I don't understand what's going on. 
Barry in that moment stepped back into the room with my students and he looked at them and said, how dare you let your brother be drug off into the darkness without lifting a single finger to help? How dare you see your brother in Christ head towards destruction and just let him go without trying to stop anything? That stuck with our students for a while. That hit them pretty hard as they realized what it means to walk as brothers and sisters in Christ, what it means to belong to one another. Is an important thing, and we need to realize that too, that if I see that happen and I do nothing, I'm responsible as well for not doing anything to stop my brother from running towards destruction because we belong to each other. Look through the Old Testament, and you can see how often God's people were all held accountable for the sinful choices of a small group or even of a former king. You see, we belong to each other, so we need to love each other in real ways that are willing to, to step into the mess or to step towards the darkness in order to pull them back from it, to do whatever it takes. Now, each of these areas are, are major parts of God's justice and the call on us to do justice, and for us to ignore these areas would be sin. Now, today I start off by giving you this definition, a little more in-depth definition of God's justice or biblical justice for a reason. We're going through a series right now called Culture Shock, where we've been looking at some different uh, ideologies of our culture uh, and where things are at in the current climate of stuff. Uh, We talked through uh, what the Bible says about politics and getting into a little bit on socialism and things a couple weeks ago. And then last week we talked through what the Bible says about gender identity. And this week we are on another current topic that's been one that goes up and down, keeps coming back. Uh, It's been around for a while, but we were talking about what the Bible says about social justice, specifically in the terms of the modern social justice movement. Okay? So like I said, I gave you this detailed uh, description of biblical justice so that we can do a quick comparison and see where we as believers need to fall in order to be in alignment with God's word. Vodi Bakum, the dean of theology at African Christian University in Zambia, gave a phenomenal talk on this subject back in February. He just uh, came out with a book all on this and does an incredible job. But I wanted to share with you the same approach that he took for defining social justice. Now, I could give you my own definition of what I see social justice as, but I actually, to be clear and to make this fair, I want you to hear the definitions used by those that are leading out the modern social justice movement. We're gonna use their definitions, okay? Uh, And and the words that they use so that we can get a real clear understanding of what it is that is meant by social justice. So we're gonna look uh, at the Oxford English Dictionary definition. Um, To start, I'm going to share with you the 2021 version of this, and then we're going to jump back and look at 2016's version of this. So you can see how much has changed, how much has stayed, uh, and how much this is adjusted based upon the current culture where we're at. So the first uh, definition or the term of this is social justice is justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. Same dictionary in 2016 said this, that it's justice at the levels of a society or state as regards the possession of wealth, commodities, opportunities, and privileges. It's, it's a very similar statement, just stated a little differently. Under both of them, though, there's a little footnote, and it says this, see also distributive justice. And when you go look at that, it's the same definition. So what they're saying is this, social justice, by its own definition, is distributive justice, distributive in the areas of wealth, commodities, opportunities, and privileges, A leader in the academic literature of social justice right now, Dr. William Young, uh, he wrote it this way. Social justice has evolved generally to mean state redistribution of resources and advantages to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their right to social and economic equality. Okay? 
I'm going to read that again. State redistribution of resources and advantages to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their right to social and economic equality. So this, this social justice, it is not a heart matter, but now it is a state matter. It's not a, a simple uh, making right. It's not wrongs being made right, but instead this is a focus on fairness as determined by the state. That is what the definition of social justice is right now. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to take the main points of biblical justice. We're going to compare it to the main points of the social justice movement to help us understand where we uh, can be in this and where things align and where they do not. So the first uh, facet of biblical justice that we looked at was generosity. All right? So generosity is a hard decision to give from one's own possessions, property, time, or self to a person, group, organization, or cause for the benefit of that recipient towards a desired outcome. Okay? It's a basic definition of generosity, but, but the heart behind this when it comes to being a Christian, remember, is it's not just about my heart decision. It's about my heart in submission to God's will in this decision. So I seek his will and I trust him and I, as a steward of what he has provided to me, I reach out in generous ways based upon what he calls me to do. All right? We go to social justice side of this and they would not use generosity. Here's the term they would use. Wealth distribution which they would define as a state-determined and possibly mandated redistribution of wealth and possession to bring a sense of fairness to members of all groups with specific focus on the oppressed. Okay? I have to define for a moment that word oppressed because you need to see what's really being said. Okay? The oppressed, they would define this way. Individuals or groups of people who are discriminated against or otherwise treated unjustly, whether by the government private organizations, individuals, or other groups. Okay, a pretty basic definition of oppressed. But then you start researching on what social justice says is the oppressed right now, and we get to see where there are some specific areas. And these are going to be very familiar. These are common, and these are, I'm going to share with you a list of where our, tommen, our, our common top areas of oppression are in our current culture, according to the social justice movement. First one is racism, then sexism, heterosexism, cisgenderism, ableism, and ageism. These are the top ones right now, okay? When you do a search across all of the different sites that they have, all their literature, these ones come up more than anything else, okay? So based upon this list of our current society's view, we, we get to see the view of what the oppressed is, but not just the oppressed, because for there to be oppressed, there has to also be an oppressor, and we get a clear picture of what the oppressor would be. So I'm going to go back through that list and I'm going to help you see what the oppressor would be if this is what the oppressed is. is racism, sexism, heterosexism, cisgenderism, ableism, and ageism. So based upon this definition, I'm going to give you what the oppressor has been labeled as. And you can go through different college courses on social justice warriors, uh, courses that they're requiring at many universities right now. Uh, And I had a a student of that last night who is here uh, who confirmed this exactly as what was taught through this year for them. Here would be the current oppressor. A white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, 18 to 50-year-old Christian. There are more that fit into that list, but it's a pretty intense list. I just described myself. Which in this, based upon that, someone pulling up our live stream today and seeing me talk about social justice 
could automatically just completely discount it because of how many intersections I have on the oppressor side without even knowing me, just by looking at me. It completely invalidates anything that I would say because of the current movement of social justice. So we, we need to understand some things, and before we freak out about it, uh, we're going to talk about something here okay, to help us understand why things are this way. Let's talk about racism. Okay, we can all agree that racism is bad. I 100% believe that God created all people, all races, all colors in his image. And because God designed it, it is sacred. And so when something goes against that, I should be against it. I should be against racism and I should fight hard to, as God commanded, do justice in that area, right? Well, here's the problem with the modern social justice movement. All the areas are tied together. It's not just one area. I, I could tie myself to just the racial justice side, but in doing that, I'm actually tying myself to every piece of it. Back to what Vody Bauckham shared in his talk, which was, again, it was phenomenal, but he stated it this way. Social justice is like a train, right? Now, the engine of that train uh, is critical theory, critical race theory, and intersectionism. Now, to understand what intersectionism is, it means someone who crosses multiple intersections on either side. As I just described, I cross many intersections on the side of the oppressor. So you look for someone to be kind of a poster child of the oppressed by having them cross multiple intersections. So a white, male, uh, heterosexual, cisgendered Christian. And so now I need to look for a, uh, by, by the opposite of this, if I can find a black, uh, female, um, non-binary, uh, Muslim, I'm crossing four intersections that make this person a perfect one to set as, my, uh, as, as kind of the poster child for this, for this movement. So, so understand, that is part of what is being used to drive this so that all of these different areas that, that are fighting in social justice can be tied together and get pulled along together to cause the largest and fastest amount of change. That is the, uh, the way that they're doing this, Okay. Right behind the engine uh, of this train, it may be the racial justice boxcar, but then tied right behind that one is the LGBTQAI plus justice boxcar, and then comes the climate justice boxcar, and then comes another one and another one, and they're all tied together. So here's the problem with the modern social justice movement is I cannot dive into a social justice-driven train as a believer in the inerrancy of God's word and still be fully walking according to it. That's the problem. Social justice cannot be my platform to deal with these issues from a God-honoring biblical perspective. It can't be there. And social justice, though, it sounds like such a good thing at face value, doesn't it? But this research does not take you long to get in. I mean, in five minutes you will find these things because this is their literature. And so understand this is what we have to look at. Now, we've gone through a comparison of one point of biblical justice versus social justice. Only one point. So I want to keep moving on this, but I think you're starting to already see something here. The next one that we look at, biblical justice, facet number two would be equality. The fact that God has made all mankind in his image and has called us to see each other as equal and united, especially within the church as it's being perfected through the work of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28 says this, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, equal. 
brought together, united. This is what we're to see, right? Now, social justice wouldn't use the word equality. They are using a word of equity. You've probably heard this word recently. It's coming up a lot. Uh, Equitable opportunities instead of equal opportunities. I want to help you understand what that is. But equity, by its basic definition, is just the quality of being fair and impartial. It's tied, actually, to the political doctrine of egalitarianism. Okay? Uh, It's a state-run distribution of wealth, possessions, rights, and opportunities across all groups to provide a sense of fairness. Now, for those of you that have researched, economic egalitarianism is actually the heartbeat of both socialism and communism, where all the wealth and possessions is government-controlled and distributed as they determine is fair. This is the doctrine of it. Now, I'm not just pulling that word uh, out and saying this is what I apply to it. These are the words they use. Egalitarianism is their doctrine that they would proudly apply to this because it is the movement that they're trying to get towards, okay? It's based upon the belief that the wealthy got their money through the oppression and exploitation of the poor. I call it Robin Hood syndrome. It's the idea that there is a very corrupt upper class that has exploited everyone beneath them to gain what they have in their power and wealth. And now the government needs to come in like the hero to take back from the upper class, to rob from the rich, and give to the poor. This is the movement. This is what it's calling for. I want to give you an example to show you the difference between equality and equity. Let's say you're going to a private school. You're trying to get one of your kids in, and there is an entrance exam. Okay, Equality would say this. Everyone that comes takes the same entrance exam. And those that meet the required grade of that entrance exam are allowed entrance into the school. That's equality. Everyone gave it, given the exact same test, the same equal opportunity to earn their way into the school. Equity would look like this. They take the same test, but the test results are not based upon grades, but upon making sure that an equal representation from all social, economic, cultural, and gender groups are given entrance to the school to make it fair. Okay? That means this. Too many young men pass the test. Too many young men meet the requirements. Well, they're only going to allow in a certain amount of them, and others will be tossed out, and the open slots will be filled with young women to make it equal, to make it come across as fair in how they're judging this. That's equity. It's not about changing the test to make it equitable. It's about changing how we judge the test. The test really is a formality at this point. So understand, this is the picture of equality versus equity. If you study through creation, you will see something about God. He is not an equitable God. Some of us are taller than others. Some of us have more than others. Some of us are born in places that are just nicer places than others. Some are, are, are born in, in areas or in situations that are not as good, not as great. And it comes across as though God is not being fair, doesn't it? Because equity is not in the character of God, but equality is. And there's a reason for that. Biblical justice, the next facet is advocacy. To speak up for those who cannot represent their rights, needs, and circumstances clearly and truthfully in the pursuit of true Justice. This is what we're called to. Social justice would use advocacy as well. To speak up, though, for the fair redistribution of rights, wealth, possession, and or opportunities taken from the oppressor and shared among the oppressed. Biblical justice would use responsibility. We all belong to one another in Christ, and I'm responsible to care for, to love, and to do justice to my neighbor as I would to myself. 
called to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. All of the commands of the law are met in this commandment, right? And so we, we see this, and this is what we're called to. This is the biblical justice that we're called to, is to love my neighbor as I love myself, to treat them justly, to care for, to love them. This is the responsibility that I have. Social justice would use responsibility as well, and here's what they would say. The oppressor is responsible for the oppressed's condition, and it is the state's responsibility to bring fairness through a possible seizure and redistribution of all things deemed unfairly set up. This is the movement. This is what's being pushed. And so I could talk about this topic for weeks, and we could break down tons of different areas to help you understand more and more of this, but I think you're seeing what I am seeing. Biblical justice and social justice do not align. They don't. And it's a difficult thing because in our world right now, social justice is kind of leading the way. And it feels like something that we should get behind and do, but we need to look clearly at what the actual message and mission is before we just jump on board the train. So to understand this, uh, I I want you to, to truly take this and see it. But we as Christians are called to a biblical justice that is in submission to and in agreement with God's law. I love how David Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way about Christianity and its role when it comes to these things. He said, the business of Christianity is not simply to make us feel happier or even to make us live a better life. It is to reconcile us to God. See, social justice is about taking the life that we're in and trying to make it better for everyone. Trying to make it happier more full of joy, but Christianity, that is not what we're called to. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, and all of this is a gift from God who through Christ Jesus has reconciled us to himself, and he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. We are his ambassadors. We speak for Christ when we plead with others, come back to God, be reconciled to God. That is what we're called to. That is the mission of of biblical justice that you as a believer in Christ are called to be on. That is what we are supposed to be doing is seeing the world around us reconciled to a God that they have been separated from by their sin, just as we were. That is what we're supposed to be doing. I think of the example of Jesus in Luke chapter four where he returns to Nazareth. It's his hometown. And he's in the synagogue and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah and this is what he reads in Luke four eighteen through 19. We see what he read. It says... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you hear the list that he just gave of what he was called to do what he was sent to do? I love the book of Isaiah because it's six to seven hundred years before the birth of Christ. And here's Jesus reading this. And he, he says, I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. I'm here to bring freedom to prisoners, sight to the blind, and set the oppressed free. And then he says to them, and this prophecy has been fulfilled here today. And it's a powerful moment that they did not believe him in. They disagreed with him on because of what he was challenging them with. He had just looked at them and told them something that every single one of us has to realize, and it's this, that spiritually we are poor, blind, captive, and oppressed. And he did this work of bringing God's full justice against the oppressor of sin that has made us that way. That is what we are called to carry. And when we realize this true spiritual state and see that God in his full justice held himself accountable to his own law in order to bring us undeserved, unfair, full freedom and eternal hope. When we realize this, things change. 
They change. We as believers, we need to start seeing this truth and to start carrying out this mission of biblical justice to reconcile people to God because that is what you are called to do. You have been reconciled to him through Christ, brought brought back into a restored relationship that was broken by sin. So carry that message out. Don't get caught up in the idea that social justice has the answers to this broken world. We have the answer to sin, death, hell, brokenness, everything. And it is Jesus and we need to carry that message That is the answer that this world needs. It's not a utopian dream. It is Christ. That's where we have to go. And so we need to see clearly on that. If you already have your faith in Christ, it's time to live that out and carry that in a culture that needs this. If you're sitting here and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, then I want to just tell you something incredible. You are separated from God because of your sin. Sin is not just bad things you do. It's missing the mark. God set a standard a perfection, and we all fell short, every single one of us. But because of his great love for us, he has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he paid the price that we owed to God. There was a debt there. God served his full justice for your sin on Jesus Christ and accepted his payment on your behalf. And now everyone who trusts in Jesus and him alone has eternal life that cannot be taken from them. And it starts the moment you put your faith in him and lasts forever. And if you're here today and you have questions about that, come and talk to me right after. I would love to help explain things out. I don't mind if it means we're going to have to sit down for a while and talk things through. That's what I'm here for. That's what I want to do. That's what my heart is about. But if you're here and you're going, I understand this and I'm ready to trust in Jesus to put my faith in Christ as the one and only way for me to be saved, then I ask during this time that we're gonna celebrate communion together, that you do some business with God, that you come to him and you say, God, I am ready to trust in Jesus and him alone. I am ready to put my faith, all the weight of what it takes to save me on him, knowing that his work on the cross, his death, paying the price for my sins, the injustice done on an innocent man on my behalf that you accepted, God, Take that time and tell God that you are trusting in Jesus. And then I ask you to come talk to me. Not because I just want to know. Here's why. I want to celebrate with you and I want to come alongside you. I want to pair you with someone from the church that can begin to walk with you and what it means to walk with Jesus so that you're not stepping into this blindly and alone. We want to come alongside you and disciple you. So I would just ask that you be bold enough to just come and talk to me. As I always tell everyone, I am very awkward up here and I'm twice as awkward just face to face. So just come talk to me. It's going to be weird. That's that's okay. It's all right. But as I said, we're going to celebrate communion. And as we do this, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Ken and Christine are going to sing a song, a song that we know. And I want you to reflect on this truth. I want you to reflect on the words of this. I want you to reflect on the message of this. And as you think about it and you think about that body that bread that represents that, I want you to remember something. It was your body that should have been broken. It was your blood that should have been poured out. And yet his was on your behalf. One of the greatest injustices of our time, of our world, of history, was done on your behalf and accepted by God who has made you right in his sight through Jesus. We need to celebrate that. So as you are ready during this song, you go ahead and take communion and then stand and join in worshiping God for what he has done. God, I thank you for all that you've done, for who you are, for the ways, God, that your word is so clear to us 
Help us to hear it and to respond to it in the way that you've called us. God, I ask that if there's anyone here who has not yet put their faith in you, that you draw them into yourself, God, that they would be able to celebrate what it is that you've done on our behalf. We thank you for sending Jesus. And as we remember, God, put this message, this mission of reconciliation through your broken body and your blood poured out, put it on our hearts. God, bring it to our lips that we would share this with those that were around, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our classmates, our teammates. God, help us to be the church on the mission of biblical justice that has been served and proclaiming that truth. God, we praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.